calls us to. But what is the promised land? I need to say something about that, don't I? And obviously on one level, at the highest level, our promised land as Christians is heaven. We know that, don't we? Actually, that is where we're ultimately going. That's the only place where actually everything that's been promised will be fulfilled. We look forward to it. We're encouraged to fix our hearts and minds on things above where Jesus is crowned in heaven. Because as we remember that, we are changed in the present. It fires us up. It inspires us. It reminds us of who we belong to and the values there that we need to hold to here. We're ambassadors of that place. And we need to behave in a way that is fitting as ambassadors of that great kingdom, the kingdom of heaven. So heaven is the answer, but I'm not just going to do a sermon on heaven. I'm going to leave that there. And I want to talk instead about in this life, what is the promised land? And I want to say it's this. It seems to me as I've looked at the passages that we read and, and also looked at what was promised for the nation of Israel or the people of Israel entering the promised land, it seems to me that what's promised is not an absence of suffering. It's not an absence of battles. It's not an absence of threats, not an absence of uh, arguments sometimes. But what it is, is a promise of fruitfulness. It's a promise that if you are faithful, if you fulfill the conditions God gives to us, you will bear fruit. There will be a harvest. So that's what I want to talk about today, how we can be fruitful, how we can have a harvest. Because if we pursue it wholeheartedly, then I think it's a step up that is achievable And actually, God wants to say it will happen. It's inevitable if we really go for it. Crossing our Jordan, occupying our land of milk and honey can be done because that's what God desperately wants for us. And when God wants something, he gets it if we align ourselves fully with him. Yes, he can use others to fulfill his kingdom purposes. Of course he can. But he wants to use us. So are we up for it? That's my question to start, and that will be my question to finish too. But on with the sermon. And the first principle then, part of this picture of what someone who's ready to enter the promised land needs to have deep within them is this. It's implicit in that parable of the talents, which I cut short for time reasons, by the way, not not any other reason. The one with one talent obviously did not do too well. Um, But this principle is absolutely key to that parable and also seeing God's plans for us fulfilled. And, and I say this with relevance to uh, both our financial resources and all the other gifts and, uh, and resources that we have available to us. And the principle, the point is this. We're servants, not masters. The early Christians summarized the gospel like this. Jesus is Lord. They repeated it. Because they knew how important this power relationship is. Three words that capture not just the message, but also the mindset. He's in charge. And that means when it comes to our resources of any description, we're stewards, not owners. And true freedom and fulfillment comes from accepting that, really accepting it. Letting go of the lie that it's ours, that we have to cling on to. And I think that explains what you may have thought of as an oxymoron in that other passage, a cheerful giver. 
Sounds a bit like a cheerful taxpayer, doesn't it? It doesn't sound like something that could be possible. Because we instinctively agree with Jesus, I think, when he said it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to give up their riches. And yet Jesus added this, crucially, with man this is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. What is he saying? He's saying that our hearts can change. And so something that seems impossible for the world out there, for us, becomes possible. We can grow the heart of God in us. And when that happens, everything is different. When that happens, all the struggle goes. Because our will and God's will is completely aligned. And that is the place of peace, that place of wholeness, that place of purpose. That's what we need. And we can see a real-life example, actually, in the New Testament in Zacchaeus. I think we probably all know the story of little Zacchaeus. He climbed the tree, trying to see Jesus, keeping well out of the way of everyone else because they hated him. He was a tax collector. He abused that situation, had grown fabulously rich, and he was considered a traitor by every Jewish person in Israel. But Jesus, as he walked past, called Zacchaeus down and said, I want to come to your lunch, your, your house for lunch, which in that culture then was not a chore. That was a privilege. That was Jesus, the most famous person in Israel, saying Zacchaeus, the man who everyone else had rejected, was precious enough to him that he, in, the, in sight of everyone else in that town, was going to honour him with his company. So Zacchaeus knew Jesus' lordship. Without even being asked, he started giving his money away in abundance to everyone he'd ever swindled, giving them twice or three times or four times as much. He knew, now that he was a new person, that's what he needed to do. He needed to do the will of Jesus, who gave generously to everyone, as Jesus had given generously to him. But he also understood this, and this is the second principle I want us to hold in our mind as we think about what a cheerful giver actually is. And it's this, Zacchaeus knew what he'd been saved from. He knew he'd been saved from judgment. He knew he'd been saved from eternal separation from the God who made him. He knew it because everyone else rejected him every day. He knew he was persona non grata. And he also knew what he'd been given at last by Jesus. Acceptance, forgiveness, self-worth, purpose, love, all of the things that we've been given too shown by Jesus in this great act of mercy to him. So no wonder he wanted to give back generously. For a diminishing bank balance was a small price to pay for all that he'd been given. And yet that's also true of us. And it's a gratitude paralleled in Paul as well, who didn't give up so much money, but gave up privilege, esteem and street cred within the Jewish establishment, persecuting the Christians but about which he said, I consider everything now a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. And we need to grasp a very important point here about our relative situation. We were just as lost. We were just as condemned. We were just as beholden to idolatry of wealth or status. We were just as far from the kingdom of heaven as they were. 
And it's only when we're honest with ourselves about that, that we have that perspective that they have, in which we're no longer competing with Jesus, haggling over the financial details, hoping to give him a bit to pacify him uh, and then keep some for ourselves. Rather, what they had done is recognize that they were now servants. So they signed away everything. They signed the contract. Signed away all of the uh, resources that they had. And instead, they were invested now, not in their own financial gain, but invested in the kingdom. That's what they were now living for. So a second principle in being fruitful and being a cheerful giver is this, appreciating the full magnitude of what we've been given and holding lightly to what we've given up. And when we do that, Paul's instruction that you should give what you've decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, makes sense. Because then our heart has been changed. That is what a cheerful giver is. And now I've got a third principle, again, to share of this uh, description of a cheerful giver, someone who is fruitful, and it's this, being deeply rooted in the life-giving spirit. And I think that has two different but related elements. One of my favorite psalms, I don't know if it's one of yours, but one of my favorite psalms is Psalm 1, because it's got this wonderful image in it where it talks about someone meditating on the law of the Lord, someone who's so immersed and rooted in the word of God that it's like a tree being planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season, whose leaf does not wither. But that word of God is actually the sword of the Spirit, And the word is one of the major ways that the spirit molds us and empowers us because we learn to trust in God's promises. We learn the reality of what actually the Christian life is like and we learn the rewards that it promises us. But equally, there's a dependence on the Holy Spirit more directly that we also need that reflects the fact that growth and fruitfulness is on one level a mystery. I don't know if you know the parable of the growing seed. It's a very small parable that that Jesus taught. But it makes this point. It says the farmer sows the seed, then he goes to bed, gets up, goes to bed each night, and he does not know how, but the crops grow. And the parallel Jesus is drawing is that it's the same with growth, numerical spiritual growth. We sow the seed, but God makes it happen through the supernatural work of the Holy Spirit. And Paul put it in his his letter to the Corinthians, neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but only God who makes things grow. We need to trust him and depend on him and then wait for it to happen. And it will. And that's true whether it's an internal harvest or an external harvest. The former is probably what it's talking about there in the passage when it says a harvest of righteousness. That is godly character being grown inside us, in our heart, which is largely invisible to others. The external harvest is the impact we have on other people, which is more visible and no less important. And they're both an important part of what it means to be fruitful, to enter our promised land. Yet because we can't control it and we can't make it happen on our own strength, we just need to trust God to do it. And we certainly need to pray lots. And we need to not worry too much about how he does it. I needed to not worry about all those new things this term. I just needed to trust God and pray. 
and find my peace in him. And perhaps next time I will, now that I've learned from that. But now here's the fourth aspect, the fourth principle in kingdom growing and fruitfulness that I want to share. Whatever we give away, God gives back. That's clearly what 2 Corinthians 9 is saying to us. And we shouldn't apply that too literally. That's the mistake made by the so-called prosperity gospel. But if we broaden it out from money to blessing, the assurance of that passage makes absolute sense. We read there, remember this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows generously will also reap generously. And God is able to bless bless you abundantly so that in all things at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. Now, this is not the language of possibility. It's the language of certainty. As we give to God, so he gives back abundantly. For this is the divine economy, grace recycled, producing God-given exponential growth. So much so that Paul can say, we will be enriched in every way so that we can be generous on every occasion through which much thanksgiving will be given. Now these aren't just words. This really happens. Just thinking about the story that Sharon shared about how so many gifts had been given to her and meaning her charity Love Moldova this year. That charity is, of course, a hugely sacrificial ministry. Sharon and Bill and many others have given so much in time and money and effort to get that charity off the ground. And yet, what is God doing in response to that? He's giving them gifts. Because when we give, when we step out in faith, when we sacrificially offer ourselves, not for our own comfort and our own glory, but for the well-being and blessing of others, both those in and outside the kingdom. God gives us his thumbs up. He gives us a pat on the back by blessing us more. So we have more and more to give. Now, it's not just Sharon who would say that. Churches would say that. Every Christian charity I've come across would say that. And individual Christians, many that I know would say that. If you are bold enough to take God at his word, he will bless you. Sometimes financially, sometimes it's through other ways. There are many ways God can bless us, whether it's the joy of being used by him, the joy of seeing the impact it has on others. Maybe it's a a great holiday, being refreshed in other ways, being encouraged, being new people coming alongside us and supporting us. Whatever it might be, we give. God blesses. So we end up being even, even more bigger givers as time goes on. Now, if, you, if it helps you to put it like this, this is a miracle. But it's a miracle that happens all the time. As Christians, we need to remember that. And when uh, people we, don't know, we know who don't uh, know Jesus talk to us about that, we can say, actually, I experience miracles all the time. Because I experience the miracle of God blessing me as I serve him. I experience the miracle of amazing coincidences that happen time and time again, but always for a positive spiritual benefit. God is active. And if we take the risks in faith, he will bless us so we can take even more risks and the kingdom can grow and grow. And 
Okay. But the fifth principle I want to share with us now is this. Obedience. Obedience to our calling. And that includes both our primary calling, those things that God calls all Christians to do, and our secondary calling, which is those things he's calling us in particular to do. Our secondary calling are things that are specific to us in our specific circumstances. And it's in those things that actually often a particularly bountiful harvest can be found. And that's where our church vision fits in. For any church, good church vision should have a mixture of what every church should be doing, together with the things that that particular church or that particular group of churches is called to do at that particular time. I would say the point is a really good example of that. So is Oasis. Things that we've felt called to do now. They'll be done again, very similar things in other places and here in the future, but it's all about the timing. It's all about the anointing. And it's all about how something that's a good thing can become the right thing at the right moment of time. For God is initiating it there and then. And God is empowering it. And God is preparing the ground for it. For there were all sorts of things that we as individuals and we as a church could do. But there are only some that we should do. And they are the Lord's plans for us. They're the things we need to fight for, to really wrestle for and really seek from God in prayer and listening to him and seeking prophetic words, seeking the scriptures to speak to us, give us direction, give us guidance and getting people we trust to pray for us and listen to God for us and then test things and then go for it. And when we do that, that's when we're led to the really, really fruitful ministry. Now, don't get me wrong. Sometimes we can get it wrong. Sometimes we can be mistaken. And as I think I've said already, God grows us through failures anyway. So that doesn't matter. But the proof of the pudding will be in the eating. If God blesses it, God is in it. And that's the place we want to be. So we see five principles then of a fruitful church. Of a cheerful giver. Five things that actually can make us the church that enters the promised land God has for us. And it's about finances, it's about gifts, it's about time, it's about skills, and it's about effort and energy. But I just want to share uh, just one final thing with us now. Going back, actually, to our vision, which uh, we shared last November and we've been working on ever since. So here's a quick reminder of of what uh, came from that. So we've got our vision for 2020, three vision priorities, praying, connecting, and growing. And we've got a strap line as well, lives transformed by Jesus. That's what we felt God calling us to. But we actually had a vision as well in the sense of a picture of what we would be like at the end of 2020. Here's a reminder of what it was. We are a vibrant, growing church, deepening our relationship with God, seeing lives and our community transformed okay now i think we've achieved a lot since then what have we done we've really thought about our prayer life we introduced half nights of prayer we did thy kingdom come we have regular prayer gatherings we've encouraged more prayer to go on in life groups and in other places we've worked on prayer we've worked on connecting we thought about um developing a culture of invitation. We thought about how to share our faith more practically and more confidently. We thought about our front line. What are the opportunities that we have? And we've set up some ministries 
trying to connect with people that we're not currently connecting with, whether it's 15 to 25-year-olds, or people um, who are more senior in age, or people who are around during the day. We've taken quite a number of steps to seek to do that. And you can see the next slide. We've actually got uh, actually the one beyond that, if you don't mind. There we go. This is um, in the welcome area now. It's a little timeline of what we've actually done since the vision was launched. There's quite a bit there. It's not too much. I think we've managed to stay on top of it. Each of those initiatives has had the, the backing and the energy that it's needed. But the next thing it seems to me and, and to the others in the leadership of the church that is timely for us to work on is growing. By which I mean our spiritual growth. Our own relationship with Jesus. Our own faith. So what we're going to do in the next term is really focus on growing. And you'll see in the little uh, sermon uh, booklet that you've been given. The series is called Hungry to Grow. It starts next week. The displays out there that Sandra did um, really show us that in many artistic and creative ways. And this term, my call to us all is are you willing to try the things that we suggest, which are going to be tools, spiritual disciplines, as people sometimes call them, things that we can do that enable us to receive more of the grace of God. Are you willing to try those things? Are you willing to up your game in terms of praying for your own growth? Are you willing to get stuck in in your life group and other groups that you serve in? Asking those people to encourage you and keep you accountable for this term of growth. And will you be willing to join me at the end of November when it comes to an end or the beginning of December, being honest about how you have grown and celebrating that together? The reality of it is most Christians do this, don't they? They become a Christian, they go up, then they reach a plateau after a year or two, and then more often than not they stay there. What I want us to do this term is carry on going. Go to a higher level. Commit ourselves sufficiently. Put enough energy into it that actually we know we're doing what we need to do to allow the power of God through his Holy Spirit to grow us as his word promises that he will if our soil is fertile. In other words, if our heart is in the right place. We're not putting anything else ahead of Jesus. We're putting him first. We're making him Lord. And we're saying to him, Father, Lord Jesus, my Savior, Holy Spirit, inside me, make me new. Help me grow. Turn me into what you made me to be for your glory, for my joy. Amen. Okay, so that's the sermon. I just want to say a little bit, though, about uh, what to do next. Now, you do know this is our Stewardship Sunday. I wanted to put it in the uh, context of the vision and where we've got to, uh, but you've all been given a little stewardship slip. Howard's uh, still enjoying his son's wedding that took place yesterday in Bristol, so he can't be with us this morning. But I just want to summarise to you what he actually told me uh, to tell you. He said this, The budget for 2018 has been balanced by using surplus from 2017, which means that we didn't quite cover uh, what we spent this year, but we had surplus to cover it. Our 2018 income and spend are both forecast to be down, about 20,000. We need to raise 18,000 in 2019 to fill the gap covered by the surplus. 
We also need an additional spend for 2019 running costs of 22,000 due to inflation, salaries for increased hours and pensions arrangements. And we need to provide 5 to 10,000 for St. Barbara's Church in in Deep Cut, which we'll be planting to probably in 2020 and where we're already taking services now. Our target for 2019 is therefore of the order of a 50,000 increase, which is about 13% of our current income. Now, where will we get this from? I want to suggest three places. Number one, those who have recently joined St. Paul's but are not yet giving uh, regularly. If that's you, it's really important that you do that now. We have people who die, we have people who move away, we have people who retire, we have people who lose their jobs. And so that means even to stay where we are, we need people who've joined the church to quickly uh, come into that relationship with us of helping keep and resource the ministry that goes on here. So if you're new, please, please, would you consider giving regularly? Secondly, it's by those already giving, but who aren't giving as sacrificially as they might. There's information on the service card about the biblical principle of tithing, which we really recommend. We do it as a family, will you? Just having a few extra families or individuals tithing would transform our finances. And as the term card explains, it's a way that you can grow too, as you see God blessing you back as you give generously to him. And finally, there are those who aren't giving at all, probably because you're either not in a circumstances where you can easily, which we understand, but more significantly, maybe because you haven't been convinced of its necessity. All I would say to you is that we receive no subsidy from any other organisation or body. St Paul's is fully self-financing. In fact, as a bigger church in the area, we subsidise other churches. And to everyone who gives to St. Paul's financially and or in other ways, can I say an enormous thank you for all that you give in helping make St. Paul's the fantastic church it is. It's definitely worth it. But please, can you step up, if you're able, to help us meet what we feel we need for 2019 and all the exciting things we believe God wants to do through us. So, let's take a moment just to settle our thoughts and perhaps just to identify in your mind what being a cheerful giver would look like for you. What would a sacrificial life look like for you? Let's take half a minute or so just to silently ponder that and then I'm going to pray for us all. Father God, thank you that you have set the bar high because you know if we step out in faith and use our resources, all of our different resources that we have, if we step out in faith, you will grow our faith. You will reward us. You will bless us back and you will grow your kingdom. Thank you that fruitfulness is a promise. Thank you that harvest is an expectation. And Father, we pray that you would so move us and change our heart 
that we become the cheerful givers, the willing servants, and the bold, the bold initiators, Lord, of new things that you call us to. Thank you for the new things that you've done this year, even this week. But Lord, whatever other new things you want us to step into and let go of old things to do so, Father, would you lead us to them? Because we know that is where the greatest harvest lies. Thank you, Father. Amen.